Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show Hawaiian lifeguard and founder of Never Off Duty, Jason Bitzer. Now, my first conversation with Jason was on episode 439, and he detailed a host of elements when it came to ocean lifeguarding in Hawaii, some of the most elite lifeguards on the planet, and his journey through bodyboarding. As we revisited during this conversation, Jason is actually sitting in hospital with his young son, James, as they navigate his cancer diagnosis. So I urge you to listen to this from the beginning through to the end. There are so many takeaways, whether it's specifically pediatric cancer and so many of the parents out there that are dealing with that, or the takeaways that apply to all of us and our own ownership of our health and advocation for our health with medical professionals. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Jason Bitzer. Enjoy. Well, Jace, I want to say welcome back. It's been, uh, I want to say, I think three years since we last sat down. So uh, firstly, welcome back to the podcast today. Right on. It's nice to talk to you again, James. And um, we have a lot to talk about, obviously, and just it's cool just to chat with you too. It's kind of like forces us into a conversation, which is cool. We get a little bit of time, check in. Absolutely. Well, I know there's been so much change in your life much for the good obviously some some challenges that you're going through with your family at the moment which are very 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 you know hard for yourself and hard for i think most people to even visualize what that is like um before we get to that because obviously that's going to be a very powerful moment i don't want to break the 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 uh, momentum when we get there talk to me about the whole uh pandemic experience through your eyes i mean you're in you know your work was on a hawaiian beach you know in in florida here initially we saw beaches closed which i would argue is the thing that people needed not needed closed but i don't want to load the question just you know totally uh through your eyes well it's been yeah so let's like play a little catch up from covid till now and everything that's going on so it it was a a different world for us. We were still on lockdown like everyone else. However, um, Hawaiian culture kind of precedes that uh, the ocean is a religious practice. So there was a, uh, a solid and I think a very, um, very poignant workaround because Hawaiians, they fish, they, they gather. It's part of their religious practice to say that they couldn't go surf and they couldn't go, you know, gather food for their families was, was pretty out there um and luckily it got averted pretty quickly now that did open the floodgates because what happened is is that people looked at that as like a way to do a workaround from the mainland and some people kind of just uh camped out um not i wouldn't say overstayed their welcome but maybe took advantage of the law spirit a little bit because there was some days during covid there was five thousand people on the beach and uh, what it did though is 
the state parks and the city parks were closed, but then they would find these off the beaten path beaches. Um, so there's a lot more like uh, 911 calls to, to various beaches, you know, 10, 15 miles away from where you're normally attracting them. And we were doing a lot of mobile response. I would say the good thing where we learned in lifeguarding is that we learned how to be a solid mobile response unit because it's part of what we do. So having such a high call volume, I think a lot of guys kind of figured out new destinations and how to do proper rescues and really like inconvenient spots. You know, you're not in a fishbowl anymore when you're got 40 miles of coastline to cover and people try to hide out. So, you know, the silver linings uh, with that side of things, um, it wasn't slow though. It was definitely not uh, much of a reprieve. And then moving on into like 2023, I just, I worked all the way up until the Eddie I Cow event and what happened is, is after COVID, it turned into like a crazy research. And so when it came back, like tourism came back hard and uh, we got, we're like, we're definitely um, as an organization, we're, we're trying to hire, I think it's another 150 people to go to the 410 schedule um, just because we need to cover more hours. There's people everywhere on Hawaii right now, just like every nook and cranny, all those spots that kind of got exposed during COVID are now mainstays. So a lot of these people are going to real dangerous spots that they shouldn't. And that means you need more trucks, you need more towers, you need more beaches covered. So they're, it's good if anybody's got the muster and thinks they can be a Hawaiian lifeguard, I would suggest this is the time to go try for sure. Now with that, if you think about Costa Rica, you think about Hawaii, you think about some of these places that, you know, a, a sport or a culture draws so many people towards it, what is Hawaii's filter? How do they stop ultimately becoming overrun with people either moving there or, or just an immense influx of tourists? Well, there's a, there's a definite issue and I don't think it's just in Hawaii. I think it's, I think it's worldwide almost. It's anywhere that's decent to live, um, kind of gets priced out for everyday middle-class people. And then if say, if you're less affluent, you're maybe even coming from another country or you're, you have a hard station life, the nicer places are getting harder, harder to afford to live. So it's the same in Hawaii. It doesn't matter if it's San Diego or if it's, you know, uh, Palm beach, Florida. So anywhere it's like, the, 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 the real estate costs, which is like scarcity is value, especially in why there's not a lot of land that it just gets harder and harder, but that can be a deterrent for a lot of people from the mainland. Um, the one thing they do really have to work on there is, uh, I think more so what people will say, like, uh, the price of housing. And I think actually what it is, is the salaries, because when you think about it is like the price of housing is, is the demand factor. The thing that is, is actually controllable is salaries. Um, pulling from the tax bases, doing budgeting, figuring out what, you know, first responders, you know, teachers, the, the, the lifeblood of any community really should be paid. And in Hawaii, I call it the palm tree tax. And it's probably going to catch on because I think it's really what it is, is you're getting a lower salary for the uh, benefit of living in quote unquote paradise. Right. Um, however, it's, it's not paradise when you have to work three, four jobs or run a business and work, you know, a civil servant job and another job just, just to be able to afford to keep the lights on. It's like, you get to look at the palm trees for like six hours a day and the rest of the time you're working, you know, like for the week. So, you know, again, I think that's everywhere. I don't think that's just nationally endemic to Hawaii. I think um, salaries have not met the pace of inflation, which is uh, real estate always meets, meets inflation. So we're all kind of like, it is what it is. You know what I mean? And, um, that whole time bomb of low rates and a lot of people moving from the West coast. Cause a lot of people were trying to escape, you know, one, the lockdowns to the taxes. And they're like, well, if I can sell my house, which is a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco for four or 5 million, and then go buy a house for 800,000 in Hawaii, the local people are now 
at a price tag of 1.5, where 800 was hard to come by because the salaries are 20% less on average, I would say, unless you're like in the financial market where it's, you know, worldwide, but any regular job, which is what's needed to keep a community, they get, they get nailed. And it's just, it is what it is. It's like the, I really think the state and local governments need to reassess their budgets and start paying for their, their uh, living wages, so to say, of their workers a little bit better. One comment I've heard from the older guys in the fire service is, you know, back in our day, you know, we'd all meet together, we'd have barbecues, we'd play, you know, whatever sport on the weekend, yeah. our kids would do this, our kids would do that. But what I've witnessed in the American fire service in the last 20 years since I've been here is that most people can't afford to live in the cities they protect. So they commute. Totally. Oh, you know? that's, that's everywhere. Yeah. Even in Ireland, I have friends that are firefighters there. It's like they're, they're driving two and a half hours for their 24 hour shift because to live in a suburb of Dublin would add 30% cost. So they go to the country and then they just kind of, if they have a back-to-back, they'll sleep in their truck. You know what I mean? And so, and then do it to, you know, a 48 hour with a six hour break between it's pretty crazy what, you know, what people are expected to do. And they're, they're the ones who literally are protecting the community. Like say, say you're wealthy, right? You own a $2 million home in anywhere in America. What I've noticed too, which is crazy is that, um, you have overworked first responders, right? Working uh, overtime because they need the money um, or just because of their short staff. Or you have in these crazy communities I've noticed in the Northeast now, you have volunteer fire services where people have, I, I cannot believe like in these multi-million dollar communities, they're not paying for first response. It baffles my mind. Even the lifeguarding, I don't get it. They have the same equipment. They have the same training and you're expecting someone to leave their regular job to go fight your, your fire, your $2 million house. I'm like, you're paying massive property taxes. Why aren't we paying professionals? Give these guys a career in these, you know, you know, 15,000, 30,000 person towns that are expensive shore towns or wherever they may be. And you're, you're not paying for your first response. It's wild. I don't get it. I don't, I don't think that's a tradition that should be in for like uh, perpetuated to be honest with you. Yeah, no, I've, I've said this many times. I've had people on that, you know, started in the volunteer fire service, some that do volunteer now, they transitioned out of their career position. But yeah, I mean, when you're talking about, you know, the middle of nowhere in Idaho or somewhere, I totally get it. You know, the population yeah, is totally. 50, but yeah, yeah you've 10 got houses. These... Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And even then yeah. you could argue, okay, well, is there a federal way of covering it too? But yeah, it's crazy. I would never want to volunteer life or the guy. I appreciate what they do in Australia, but they have professionals working with the volunteers. That's okay. You know, that makes sense because then it's altruistic. You're helping your community, but there is a layer of professionalism and, and accountability. But like, I would never want a lifeguard to be a volunteer because they don't have accountability of like, hey, man, I'm giving up my time. So if something goes wrong and your kid dies, it's like, yeah, I know. Well, you, you put it on uh, on a weekend warrior that's not a professional. It's it's not a smart. I don't think it's I, I don't like it, to be honest with you. <laughs> but that's just the way on my opinion. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, a valid thing. I mean, if you know that your kid is bleeding to death or burning to death would you want that person to be in that fire station poised to respond directly to your home or would you want it to be a phone call to a pager to them getting in their private vehicle then going to a fire station exactly. I mean, it, it makes no sense it's all about priorities the other thing is training too is because even if you've never if maybe they've had a handful of those situations so they know how to deal with it better as a professional and at least they've been trained in a controlled environment to know what to do to handle that type of, of situation i mean there's there's a, there's a lot of layers to first response and experience. So like the guy that's, you know, been on the volunteer first aid squad then moved to the fire squad and then never saw, you know, like a, a, a crazy condition or, you know, four alarm fire. And then all of a sudden he's called to and your kids trapped in the middle of it. Like that's, that's a recipe for disaster. And it's not fair to the volunteer too, because the amount of stress they're going to carry, 
for not, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just a, on both sides of that scale. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, I mean, like you said, there's, there's some volunteers, obviously, that if they were, there was a career position, maybe they wouldn't qualify for it. But there's a lot of people that would probably love to be paid to be firefighters, but they have to do their other job to pay the bills. Yeah, that's one thing, because when I moved, I moved back to the Northeast right now, um, and I'm still working my job remotely. My hours are kind of crazy. We were talking about that. I start at one, basically, and end at like eight o'clock. So I have these all, you know, like say, like I'm up at six to 1230, where I'm doing other stuff and prepping. And, you know, my kid obviously is taking a lot of time. But I looked into it. I was like, hey, you know, well, I could always become a firefighter because the schedule is so great. But they, they do this thing here. Um, and probably a lot of agents, they don't do it in Hawaii, but they do it here. They age you out at 35. So if I'm like, I'm 41, but just using me as an example, I'm still in really good shape. I try to, you know, it's, with everything going on, it's been a little bit hard, but I still could pass a fire exam. I still could do the physical. I could still be a PD. I could do it. I could do any one of the jobs. The only one that's available is EMT um, private because after 35, they age you out, which is rough because like, you know, for the pension, I understand it, but there should be time like we're, we're in the U S there should be some type of reciprocal, like civil service transfer. So if you get to move, you just go, Oh, I can't work in the field that I did because I just turned 40. Like it makes zero sense. Cause some guys are hammers until they're 60, you know what I mean? Or plus so it's not really, it's like a waste of a resource in my opinion. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I'm 49 and I'm not wearing a uniform anymore, but yeah, the, the, yeah. about when was it two years ago, three years ago, I did the CPAT, which is our entrance test, just because I, I wasn't sure if I was going to get sponsorship and you know have to uh, yeah. go back to the fire service. So I yeah, did yeah. it and you know smashed it, absolutely smashed it's it. Good, it's good to touch it. Like right now, I'm not. I'm I'm basically on a sabbatical or or leave from my original position because the cool thing about um, I like about first response is usually they're you know it's a high stress job. So so if someone takes a year off because they need a break, they give you a year to return which is very nice of them because I, I think a lot of times, a lot of these first response careers, like not everybody, some people get out of jail uh, a little bit better than others, but I've seen a lot of heavy stuff and accumulative stress is real. So, uh, you know, having that break in service, but that doesn't mean you come back in a year and you forgot those 20 years of experience and you're not physically fit anymore. You should be able to get in and, and prove your worth on merit. You know, I, I'm a big, like a meritocracy type of person, like, how good you are and how much effort you put in really should dictate it. I don't think age is a determinant factor. It's like what you can actually do should be, uh, is what, what should be valued and kind of looked at as why you can get into a position of any job. Yeah. Well, the reciprocity side too is, is insane to me. You know, I mean, that you, oh, yeah, yeah. I was actually very lucky. I trained in Florida. I, they had a, um, I don't think it was even the lateral, but they had a hiring in California and they accepted my Florida cert beautiful because those two are kind of parallel but then you know there's so many states where people are learning to pull hose and throw ladders and do all the things that we do no matter where on the on the country we are and they have to redo the entire fire academy in that state to get certified yeah i just had just something like that too so what i did um unfortunately or fortunately i don't know like i'm an emr instructor for red cross but unfortunately, I never had my EMT because my job never incentivized it until this year to get it. Um, now they're they're giving a differential for EMTB, which is I think is a good step in the right direction, especially for creating like more professionalism and lifeguarding. But because of what happened with my son, I wasn't able to do the first cohort, which was like an online blended learning for Honolulu lifeguards because we're working full schedule. So how are you going to go to school full time? So they made it at night and online and then to do your skills and your ride alongs. And I missed that. But what I was like, it was in my, I get like one of the, I'm kind of, um, 
in the sense that if I set a goal, I get very frustrated if I don't accomplish it because I put a date on it. So I just went out and I, and I entered, um, it's called National EMS Institute. And I did the same. I just paid for it on my own. And I did my ENTB and I just finished it actually on Monday. I did my national in Massachusetts. I shot up there from the hospital, waiting for my son to go to sleep, drove up there four hours in the night, passed the test between 7-Eleven and drove back to the hospital. Um, but uh, long story short, though, um, the same thing happens here. So I passed it in Massachusetts. I can do the national. It's nationally standardized. But then I got to take it again whether I was going to work in Hawaii as a state or New Jersey as a state, you still need to do another layer. And I get it. I just think like um, the more standardizing a quality of training nationwide, it makes us more unified. And the same thing with lifeguarding every town in New Jersey, I've noticed has their own standard of lifeguarding. And you can literally walk a two mile beach and have a totally different set of uh, baseline training for open water or not open water. Some of them aren't even doing, which is baffling. But I was like, it doesn't need to be so daunting where it puts the training out of reach, but it should be standardized enough that if I walk across a town line and have to do a rescue with the town over, that we have some type of core competency. We know how to do a C-spine extrication. We know how to do the basics of like, you know, shore break extrication. They're not like, oh, we don't do that here. We line pull here. We don't like, it's just, it gets so hodgepodgey that it's like, you know, that's, it's kind of strange. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of fragmentation in the fire service, and you'll find, you know, I've had this in uh, Orange County. I think it was Orlando who had different size hoses, so we literally had to carry couplers, and you know, you have to know, okay, this this agency has this, this one has a stores coupling, this one's threaded, and you know, and it does. It's just all this added work for no reason. I mean, ultimately, you know, if you're in a state choose a supply line that's you know i I would argue the biggest the five inch for example make that standard across the board that way it doesn't matter who you respond to especially if it's a large incident it's logistics yeah the same thing i think that way when it comes to lifeguarding too and having a little um i'm having a lot of good reception with it because i um i've always freely trained a lot of the guards in new jersey and new york and a lot of really good agencies are progressive um, Long Beach Island's been a really great one. Uh, uh, Seabright and a bunch of a bunch of really good ones. Uh, Spring Lake, Seager. There's a lot of good agencies, but some are stubborn, and I think they need to get um, outside of the mind of that we're wagging a finger saying what you're doing is wrong. What we're saying is like what we want you to do is have options and critical care. Um, so we're also showing you what's progressive. You know what I mean? And then let's try to make it so it's unison. So, because if you're doing something old school and these guys are doing something new school and then you hit heads, it'd be like having two different versions of CPR on the same, you know, the same, like in a, a, a town that has four, four square miles in the next four square miles town doing totally different things. It's just, it's like, it's almost like uh, the science is already, is, is already decided on drowning. Let's all get on the same page. You know, like we know how to do C-spines. Let's all get on the same page. You want to do your physical test differently? Totally fine. But when it comes to patient care, like it's pretty well known what works best. Like let's all kind of accept that and try to try to make that not be rigid to be like, Oh, we were doing this the last 50 years. I'm like, yeah, well, there's been a lot of drownings in those 50 years. Let's maybe change it up a bit. You know, let's get those numbers down kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a lot of reinventing the wheel. Um, One of the places I worked at the theme park uh, was a water park mm -hmm. and we were there in our orientation 2013 and they, they, one of the guys that was teaching us said, if anyone has any ideas on how to make rescue on this, it was like a chairlift, like in a ski, ski resort, it's a fake ski, um, 
water park if anyone has any ideas let us know and i remember just thinking like this thing's been open for like 40 years and you haven't figured out yeah. how to you know what i mean and then same with uh that same uh orange county when i worked there we had boats and yeah. so uh you know we would go and do rescues and they were using regular backboards with tape and i'm like have you never been in the fucking water before this yeah, isn't gonna work yeah. there is an entire you know profession that specializes in water rescues why do we not have the velcro aquatic backboards yeah, on the, back, yeah. you know so this is the problem is that you don't you don't need to look for the answer the answers are there you just need to have the humility to go hey ocean lifeguards can we steal some of your ideas yeah, exactly. No, I totally, I totally agree. It's funny you mentioned the water park because I think I mentioned what I'm doing now. I got a job offer right after the Eddie I. Cow event. I was working with the Hawaiian Water Patrol. Fortunately, it was a really amazing experience. But right after that, I got asked to uh, consultant work for um, two, but one mainly as a, a job position for a place called Waikai Lagoon. And uh, you were talking to tell me about when you were used to work at the water park. And it was a great experience, essentially, because it's like footfall, the amount of people that go through these properties, you actually really learn a lot about logistics and how important your, your patient care is and how to set up staging and, you know, different things that are a little bit more like, um, controllable, like you're in a more controllable environment. So you can get more into like, uh, the details of first response, because a lot of the times when you're in the field, you're already showing up to the scene versus having a scene and being able to mitigate how things funnel, how extrications can be done. And you can kind of do that in the building plan, and so like, it was cool. I remember we were having the last conversation and it is actually very interesting to me, that world, because they're, it's like, uh, they say it's a military, um, uh, formula, but Brian Kalana brought it to lifeguard. It's like people plus hazards equal risk. So these, these attractions are bringing a lot of people to a risk. How do you mitigate and then respond for the, you know, like the unavoidable, so to say. So it's, it's been kind of interesting working in that world now too, learning a lot. When I was working in that department, there was kind of an arrogance towards the lifeguards. But having been the lifeguard myself, only on lakes and um, you know theme parks and things, um, I was enamored by how professional it was the Disney. So the Disney lifeguards yeah, yeah, no, were, were phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And so this disconnect was actually from the fire department not working closely with the lifeguards a lot. Yeah. So you yeah. know, I'll give kudos to Disney lifeguards there. You know, you walk in and you hear you know one, two, three being screamed down the hall. Yeah, you know, there's two young Disney lifeguards that are just freaking you know, muscle memory, just nailing their CPR. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, because the reality is, is like um, whoever responds to your child, that's one that's going to save your life. So like, you want the best. Doesn't matter. Like, oh, Disney, like you want the best at Disney. Like, you want them to be trained as well as possible because that might where it happened. You know, anything can happen anywhere. So that's that's it's good to hear that. For sure. We talked about Ireland. Pedro was on the show after I think you, you introduced me yeah, to him. Yeah. Um, one of the funniest things was he talked about Dublin. It was the only place, I think, in, in the whole of the Ireland and um, the UK that has firefighter paramedics. And I was like, oh, so, so, you know, when did you go to the American model? And he goes, oh, no. He said, we were doing this in, I think he said like 1898. And oh, obviously really? it was a version of, but it was the combined yeah, yeah. fire and EMS. Yeah. And so I was, I was like, oh, how arrogant of me to assume that we copied you, but you know, it was probably the other way around. So yeah, they, again, you talk about lack of communication. You've got this, this city in, in Ireland that's been doing it the right way for over a hundred years. For a long time. And you've yeah. got the rest of the, you know, the mainland that's, uh, you know, refusing to, <laughs> to, uh, to acknowledge. Yeah. I was, uh, my best friend just, what's today? So Friday he leaves, he's going to go visit, um, Pedro. They're doing a photo shoot over there and they're going to check up. 
he's a great guy. He's, um, he's got a lot of experience, like just from the fire side of things that he brings to, to the water side of things, uh, which is great for the surf because like, um, I was trying to explain to uh, a couple guys that I might help with safety this year. It's like, well, you know, like it's one thing to be able to drive a ski. It's another thing to perform really quality BLS in the field and, and trauma medicine. So it's like, if I was, uh, the surfer going to like a remote place or a big wave destination, I was like, yes, I want the guy to be really competent on the jet ski. If you have an option, have that guy also be a medic a really quality medic and understand drowning science and, uh, and, and bleeding control and, and everything from, you know, like, you know, sucking chest wounds to chest flail to when to use oxygen and when not to use oxygen, because initial patient care is going to make secondary care important. And I think what my goal was, was like, we have these different organizations that are teaching water safety and things like that is like for uh, first response at a higher level for surfing is extremely important because say someone like breaks their ribs, right. And, uh, they're, they're having like a, a major chest flail or something. They're like, well, do they know that you're basically going to get a splint by doing BBM? Do they know what the right oxygen is. Do they know when not to use oxygen? They, you know, like there's a lot of things that there's, they just go, you know, it's just like get them to the beach. Oh, oh, transport. But a lot of the stuff they're doing these days is remote and dangerous. And you're going to need like your own personal medic that hopefully is, uh, a really good jet ski operator too. And if not, what I would do is get your operator and then work with the team. So the secondary care for the C-spine managed and everything like there's really quality as well. Cause they're, you know, you're, you're, you're only as good as your team in those situations in my personal opinion. I've used ocean lifeguarding as a great parallel and I want to get to fitness standards again in a second. We'll revisit that. But what you just said reminds me of some of the, the resistance to EMS in the fire service. And ironically, pretty much everyone that I'm talking about entered the fire service when EMS was already part of it. So certainly California, Florida, the places that I've worked, you can't say, oh, I just want to be a firefighter because that's not how we were trained, EMS. But the the analogy I've used is, you know, you do this, you, you fly out of bed, you go down to the rig, you drive lights and sirens, you go into the building, pull the kid out, and now they're steaming on the front lawn. Now what? You no, just pulled yeah. a body out. And it's the same with lifeguarding. You know, you go out and you jet ski, you make this amazing rescue, you pull them onto the beach. As you said, they've got a sucking chest wound or, you know, whatever it is. And and now you just watch them die on the beach. So this is what's so ironic is ultimately it is the EMS that saves lives. It is true because like for us, I'm glad we're doing EMT because I'd really like to be able to intubate and everything right on the beach because all we're doing is waiting 15 minutes to get that in. We throw the OPA in. But we, what we're really trying to do is get, you know, get an intubation going and get a direct airway, but we have to wait for that. So we're pumping and breathing, pumping and breathing. But like, if we just had that one extra little thing, it's just like the, the numbers go up, you know what I mean? Especially with drownings and it's, and it's such a respiratory issue, um, getting knocked out, surfing, whatever it may be, like you have such a high percent chance to get high flow oxygen right into the lungs. It's like, if we could do this, that one intervention, that's all we really need. And, you know, so it's little things like that that I think are, are super important. It's, it's the detail. Everything's the details. Everything you do in life is, is the detail. So I totally agree with that for sure. Yeah. Now, in the last few years, was people have needed to hire more and more and more. We've kind of had a, a, a decrease in candidates. And I think there's a multi-faceted uh, reason why we do. And, and a lot of people understand now what the fire service actually looks like. It's it's a you know an absolute burning love for that profession for me but there the way that we work our first responders has devolved terribly it just hasn't you know matched the the caller 
But yeah. what's a lot of these agencies answer is to lower fitness standards, lower standards to get more people in, which I think is the polar opposite of what you need to do. What have you seen in ocean lifeguarding? Have they been able to maintain that standard? So I'm looking at it from the eyes of more likely the greatest group of lifeguards in the world. Um, and there's been no degradation in the physical standards, which makes it hard to hire. Um, it does attract the best of the best. The problem is sometimes we have high standards with low pay. So that's a contradiction of terms. So if you want high standards, you should pay for those standards. Um, a good example is this. So the North Shore lifeguards, roughly 40 to 44 people, men and women um, in that district. Now, I would say, and all honestly, 20 of those uh, men and women are probably the most elite water people that grace the face of this earth. So you're paying very little money to get the cream of the crop. And then you're expected to do a great marketing campaign through it to get other people to do the same thing. And they're looking at the standards of how much effort did that guy do to do this job, to be able to stay at the physical standards, to make these rescues, and then to see his check, not move the needle ever. And it's, and it's like, well, okay, I could do that for four years to say I did it. I can maybe do it for eight years to really enjoy it, but can I do that as a career? And uh, sadly, it's just the way it is, is, you know, say it's a 48,000 uh, start, then you're maybe at 52 within two years. Fire, you're starting out at 54, but you're up to 68 within a two year until you get to firefighter two. Then with the overtime and everything else, you'd be making a hundred the first year. There's no option for that, uh, for lifeguarding. So, you know, not to harp on the pay factor is that, they want the best, but if you want the best, I think you should be paying for the best. Um, I think that's for any agency, you know what I mean? And if you're going to lower the standards, you're going to get a subpar product. It's just like offshoring your product from like, uh, like look at furniture these days. We want it quick and fast. We use press wood. Well, if you want a piece of hardwood, you know, like I'm, I'm moving into a new place in the Northeast right now to temporarily for my family. And there's all these people giving away old school looking hardwood furniture. I'm like, I'll take that over paying for Ikea because I know that thing will be here in 50 years. You know what I mean? It do, it's like what, what's tried and true is like the quality and you're going to degrade, you're going to get, it's going to fall apart. So um, it's just, it's really common sense stuff. I think um, the attraction to be a Hawaiian lifeguard is really easy, but I think the, the staying in, I used to talk to a lot of the vets. They say, yeah, around that 12 year, 15 year mark, you really see people go with either They're going to stick it out or they're going to have to make a move because of the pay. And that's, that's the only reason. Otherwise I think it's the greatest job in the world. It truly is. Um, and I think a lot of these first responder jobs are, you know, I talk to firefighters and they're like, no, I wouldn't, it's the best. I don't want to do anything else. But the good thing about fire is that not everywhere, but at least they have a standard of pay that's, that's quality. You know what I mean? And, and, and comparison to where they live. Why? I wouldn't say that's the case. Say they have the best lifeguards in the world. They're the most underpaid in the world for what they do. That's, that's the truth. Well, that underlines one of the reasons why I think we have the hiring problems that we do. I mean, the fire service you talked about was well, 60, but with overtime, well, that overtime should never even be factored in. You know, it's 56, yeah, but if it, you, if it you work. Because it's a lifestyle, you're getting burnt out. And you're, you know what I mean? It's just the way it is, you know? It's exactly. It's the stress, added stress, cumulative stress. It's all real. So, yeah. And, not, and, and then, and then you have the financial aspect. If you're not really, you're trying to make ends meet, you know what I mean? And then you're frustrated at work. Well, that turns into quality of care. So, you know, I've even seen that in nursing lately too, because we've had a lot of, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not diminishing because it's such a intense medical industry, 
but there's a lot of human error. And I think it comes from fatigue, overworked, and in the nursing industry, the doctors send the marching orders and the nurses facilitate it. So if you have overworked nurses, you're going to hit uh, an impasse where there's going to be a mistake made because pay, frustration, uh, they're, they, do they want to be there? Do they not want to be there? It's a really big, important thing. Attitude dictates outcome. Every job, right? So if they're the ones like, you know, doctors are doing the rounds, amazing. They've had a lot of amazing doctors, a lot of amazing surgeons, a lot of amazing nurses. But the one thing you will notice in the medical industry is you see nurses way more than you see doctors. So the volume leads itself to probability and probability says, if you're going to have a numbers game at one point, it's going to fall apart. So it's no fault of their own. It's just they're the least paid and they do the most work. That's the way it usually is. You know what I mean? And that's in every job. So it's, it's, it's all very relative for first response. Well, I think the other thing as well that I've talked about a lot is this is the internet age. So you and I went into our professions because we just wanted to make the world better. You know, and we assumed all the other stuff would take care of itself, money and benefits and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was secondary yeah. to your mission. Yeah, it wasn't the goal, yeah. Now people are going into this saying, I want to serve. Let me, you know, let me research the fire service. Oh, there's all these, you know, suicides and, you know, they're, they're understaffed and they're working extra shifts. And now they're getting a picture of what it actually looks like before they step through the door. So this is the problem is that we have to create the working environment and the pay. As you said, I mean, you said it perfectly that, that mirrors the skills that you're asking these people to do. And then you make that bar high so that yeah, money and then. Yeah it, yeah, it attracts people, but you also make sure then that you deserve the money that you're getting paid. So it's a win-win, yeah. really. Yeah, like you're going to find your outliers like like me, probably because I have a, a slight ADHD that gets focused on certain things more than others. But I'm going to like I'm a controlled adrenaline junkie, like meaning I like to look at it, uh, assess it and then attempt it. I don't just jump into it blindly, but I, I definitely have my, I guess it would be a healthy addiction to the fact that like I'm missing, uh, the fact that I'm not doing rescue actively right now. It's hundred percent true, but that's not every human. Some people still want to do this, but they're like risk versus reward. You're not going to just have every, you're not going to attract every adrenaline junkie and have a quality. Cause a lot of those guys are off the rails too. If you just want that all the time, you're not going to get, you're not going to get the control person that you need for that job either. You're just going to get this loose cowboy. And that's not always what you want either. You need that hybrid of intelligence how to execute, how to follow protocols, but also not be afraid to jump into the fire when it hits either. So that's, that's a, like a, a lot of those things are counterintuitive to each other. So how are you going to market that with the pay market that with the lifestyle and make it so it's like a holistic view of to attract the right people, especially generationally now, like too, like no offense to the new generation, but it is like trying to get blood from stone sometimes with millennials to try to teach them uh, what the experience you have and relate to them. A lot of them are shaking their head and some of them I hate to say are doing it fortunately for the Instagram likes, which is, you know what I mean? Like um, posting a photo on Instagram of your job in uniform is not actually doing the job. Doing the job is the grind. It's like, uh, you know, probably something in, in and I can't say I've never been a part of it because obviously we all self promote a little bit, but like the awards that I've gotten for my career are not nearly as intense for the things that got unnoticed the day-to-day stuff that nobody knows about and all my partners, the stuff that, that you don't even hear about these stories. And some of them are too brutal to explain to the general public. That's the real part of the job. It's not like the one time out of your 20 year career that someone hands you like a gold medal from a mayor or something. And you're like, Oh, cool. Thank you. They don't get it. They don't even, even at the governmental, they don't see what we see. 
they, they couldn't literally could not do our jobs. They would have a breakdown of stress. I, I, I really get frustrated to see when uh, politicians neglect their first responders because it's such a critical part of society. And the, I hate to say it, but like they couldn't walk in our shoes. And it's just the truth about it. So it's like, pay, pay us for that. You know, pay it for the fact that you can't and chose not to do this because somebody's got to do it. So that's, you know, not to kick a dead horse, but that's, you know, comes, it comes from the budgeting. It comes from the government. They should hear that message. Yeah. Well, you hit on a very good point too. The adrenaline side of us obviously yearns for that fire, but I'll be completely honest in 2023, fire is few and far between. And that's a, an amazing thing. You know what I mean? That means, you know, it's not, we don't want people's houses to burn down. So a lot of the times it is EMS and in that, a lot of times it's really non-emergent. But I wrote a book about three years ago now and one of the chapters was on what we call a back-to-bed call. So yes, you might be on, on the roof of a building with a chainsaw in your hand cutting a heat hole. We might be making entry or you know cutting a car apart to try and get to someone. But equally, you might simply be in an elderly couple's home and the, the wife has fallen down, the husband can't pick her up and he used to be a big strong lad when he was younger. And now he's mortified that he can't pick his, the love of his life off the floor. So we go in and we clean her up and we put her back in bed. You know, that is equally as important. So we're not looking for a two-dimensional action hero either. You need to be able to go from one extreme to the yeah. other. Us too. Like the thing is, if we're doing rescues instead of preventatives, there'd be a lot of dead people. So it, it, in general, it's like that's one thing I've noticed on the East Coast is they blow the whistle. It goes in and out of one ear. It's not a preventative. A whistle is a tension grab. The preventative is when you talk to the person, say, hey, man, I don't want to ruin your fun, but this rip will kill you. And this is why. So I'm letting you know this is, you know, because if you just whistle and then you let them, you're, you're just letting things accumulate. And you're also droning them out. They hear a thousand whistles today at a 10,000 person beach in New York or Florida, or New Jersey. And they're like, is that whistle for me? I just heard it a thousand times. It's not an effective tool unless you're using it with a follow-up. So there's all these different things. It's just patient contact. And, you know, that that in itself is very tiring to a first responder. It's just all day long talking to people. But think about how many lives you saved just doing preventatives as a lifeguard or how many, like, um, you know, contacts where you just did like, hey, maybe an Alzheimer patient, elderly couple, trying to help them out for the day. They're just, you know, they don't have full-time care. You're, you're basically that little gap that got them back to having a normal day for, you know, just living as an elderly couple. It's totally true. And those are the majority of your calls, but those are long days too. You know what I mean? That's just the way it is. I remember lifeguarding. I did a, like a local leisure center that had a couple of slides and mainly a pool. And then uh, a big place called center parks in the UK, which was under this big dome, but it was uh, some much better slides, the wave pool, that stuff. And then lakes and summer camps in New York. And I would be bored most of the time. And that's an awesome thing. And it was because, like you said, you'd get someone's attention, you'd, you'd crouch down to that child's you know, level, you'd talk to them, you'd explain, you know, hey, if you keep running. And the way I think that a lot of things are kind of um, projected at people today, to use a, another lifeguarding analogy, there's a lot of whistleblowing, but there's no explanation. Yeah. There's no explanation. So like yeah. masks are bad or Chinese conspiracy or whatever, but no one's actually just saying, hey, Here's the middle of the road. Here's, you know, here's the pros, here's the cons, here's the whys. Now you make your own decision. And when you understand like, oh yeah, I did almost kill myself, then yeah. you change your yeah. own behavior. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's, well, that's just a, a generation of let's, uh, instead of just wholesale hand holding, let's educate people. There's a lot of like, people are just kept in the dark on things, which is stupid because that's where disaster happens. Like 
educate people, make them stronger, make them have good choices, you know, like allow them to have choice, but give them the educated choice. But if you just go like, don't do this, don't do that. You're just getting sheep that don't figure it out themselves. It's not going to help anybody because if I explain to the kid why, you know, when he's, you know, nine, 10 years old, run away from parents, why he shouldn't jump off this rock or why he shouldn't jump in that rip. And then he comes back to the beach. I don't need to do it the next time because he already has the knowledge and he self and he self manages. So there you go. That's, that's lifeguarding. One one is like, like, don't give a, give them enough rope where they can, you know, learn, but give them the education so they don't get themselves in trouble. And that's just life in general. It's like, it's almost like parenting. You know what I mean? It's like, you gotta, you gotta keep it back and forth. Yeah. Well, that was a perfect segue, parenting. So you are sitting in the Ronald McDonald house right now. So your beautiful little boy, James, walk me through prior to you realizing something was wrong to uh, where we are now. Yeah, it's, um, I'd say like what I'm going through now, I call it like life interrupted, so to say. Um, and I will say for people out there, one, count your blessings because um, things move fast. And life changes really quick. And I've had a few of these in my life where you're like, okay, life interrupted sickness, family, but it's usually been sister, dad, mom, you know, middle age, elderly child sickness is the most daunting and cruel thing I've ever been a part of in my life. Um, now when, to walk back is I probably told the story so far to a million people be, or just on, on uh, Instagram, just so they understand. Cause it's, it's a hard one to understand. So I basically left my career for 15 years around February 15th in the transfer week. I had um, some time off, you know, I burnt a little leave uh, and to spend some time with my family and I was having a boys day. My wife and my daughter were out on their own little uh, adventure that day. And I took my son to jujitsu. We had a great day. We went and swam right after went had lunch. I'm literally telling you, you can look at the date on my Instagram It's February 10th. Um, or February, yes, yeah, February 10th, perfect health. I mean, like nothing wrong with this kid whatsoever. Swam all day, had a ball. Like, like you can look at the video and go like, what? He slipped very mildly coming down, uh, like a gravel hill from jujitsu before we went swimming, hit his bottom. No big deal. Like toddler fall. It's like a one out of a 10. No big deal. Like, oh, okay. That night, I go meet my wife, and we go surf. We take turns watching them in the um, tide pool of pipeline. She surfs, watching the kids, everything. He, this kid's playing all day, eight hours. We switch roles. I go to jump in and catch one wave, and she says, hey, you know, it was weird when we, I had him. I had too much stuff in my hand, so I had him walk up the beach. It's pretty, like, kind of long walk. So I was like, oh, okay. She's like, yeah, he's complaining about his feet, like his feet hurting. I was like, oh, you know, I was like, you know, that kids sometimes say it's one thing, but it's another It radiates. They don't really know how to explain. You know, he was a young three-year-old just turned three. And so we're like, okay, let's just monitor it. That night at 2 a.m. He wakes up screaming, daddy, I can't walk. Daddy, I can't walk. And he's like trying to walk and he can't walk. I'm like, Whoa, what happened? I'm thinking maybe he has a hairline fracture in his hips from that fall. I'm trying to work it back. Maybe he's super tired walking uneven on the sand and it, you know, hip dysplasia as a young kid can happen. It shoots in the ER room. Um, they're baffled. We're in the ER for three days, nothing. They go, you know what? Here's some, uh, Toradol. Here's some Tylenol NSAIDs. Pain goes down. It's probably synovitis fluid in the hips post-viral. Yeah. Did he have a cold? Yeah. He had a cold in the end of January. Okay. Boy, male boys get this thing called synovitis. It's just like an aberration. It comes and goes, okay. It slightly goes away. I go home doing the turmeric. I'm doing his smoothies, less inflammation. 
I take him that weekend. He's doing a little, he's doing pretty good actually. Take him that weekend, do the same thing, a beach day in Macaw. This thing is called the Buffalo Big uh, Board Contest. It's like a big community surf contest for families. Spend the day, everything's great. Same thing that night, Saturday, Saturday to Saturday now. So this is the next Saturday. Wakes up, inflamed, what's going on? Can't walk, go straight back to the ER. So now we're in there for two, three days. I'm kind of getting frustrated because like, you know, I have a background in first response and they're doing one hit, they're doing one leg, they're doing, I'm like, hey, can we just do a full body scan? Um, let's do a CT x-ray the whole thing, do it bilaterally, cut some type of comparison. Let's stop hitting them onesie twosies. And they do it. They find this very slight, I would say quarter of a, not even fingernail possible nodule through an ultrasound. They're like, maybe that's something there's no oncologist through Kaiser. They have to share with Papiolani. Luckily by that Wednesday, this is like going in Sunday. Now by Wednesday, she's like, Hey, he looks so healthy, but let's just do a bone marrow scan. You know, like, let's just rule out everything comes back sadly devastatingly like almost like in a in a like a, a bad movie scene i had to like basically block my brain out because i didn't want to break down in front of my wife because my wife obviously had a nervous breakdown when she found out that it was preliminary neuroblastoma cancer not in leukemia not neuroblastoma which 30 years ago is a death sentence sadly and um moving the needle forward now we two weeks later we finally got the final diagnosis so as soon as i heard that I'm looking into the disease and trying to figure it all out, trying to look, what is neuroblastoma? I'm not in that world. What it is specific cancer? How does it work? Okay. It, it, uh, it usually stems from the adrenal gland. Uh, his is in the bone, his age. So usually if he was like two, it would be a different uh, diagnosis, but it's stage four because he's age, like an X, Y axis of age and uh, where it's at, that it's in his bone marrow. We do an MIVG scan confirms that it is neuroblastoma. It's not a false positive. And it's 85% of his uh, bone marrow. Very daunting, makes his scale go up pretty high. This soft tissue seems pretty minimal, but it's irrelevant since it's already metastasized in the bone. We got to move. We got to figure this out. Now, no offense, Hawaii did the best they could, but it's like anything. If you're going to do something, do it right. And in those two weeks, luckily, I was just obsessive. And so was my wife and talked to some families that moved from London to Sloan Kettering, to move from California for Sloan Kettering and uprooted their life and said, they said, in lower, no, no, uh, you know, not mincing words, they said, get there. And when I did the research and uh, the choices were, were very invasive for this disease, um, a lot of uh, residual uh, side effects from the care for the current standard, the way that um, Sloan worked when we're in an N9 study, which is a, it's just a, a program that they've come up with about two years ago. Um, and it's uh, specific to neuroblastoma. You get a less side effect for a very equal amount of result. And then you take it from there. Whereas uh, the other studies are front ending with making it very invasive and hoping for a very good outcome, but there's always, you know, your son could go deaf, most likely sterile, um, liver, kidney, all the things, toxicity levels. Chemo is not fun, but with this disease, it's a necessity um, because you have a lot of soft tissue. And the immunotherapy is what we're going into next, um, which I'm very hopeful for because that's what's really changed neuroblastoma. Um, we haven't done any rescans, so we still are in limbo, meaning with the last five months, we've just done five cycles of chemo. And um, the one good thing is that when we made the decision, we were about to do surgery in Hawaii. And in my knowledge was that Sloan had the best surgeons in the world. And they've proven that fact. They definitely have the best surgeons in the world. Um, also with my opinion of it, and it's just, it turns out that it's, Sloan's opinion too, is that I'd rather treat the soft tissue 
with chemo and then remove versus removing a live tumor. There could be debate on that. My personal opinion because my sister died of cancer is once they did surgery and they didn't treat it spread much quicker. So I was sticking to what I could see and, you know, see and to, and, and, uh, and interpret. And I was like, okay, I want to treat it and then remove it. And that's what their protocol was. So it did work out that we moved to Sloan to the way the standard of care that I wanted to follow and my wife as well, luckily. Um, and so he just did a surgery. He had probably the roughest thing I've ever seen a three-year-old go through. He went, he caught a flu while he was neutropenic on his third, uh, his third round at Sloan fourth total. Cause we did one in Hawaii and he was stuck in an ER back and forth for two weeks. Then he went straight into a very invasive surgery, which, you know, cuts about a 12 inch under his rib cage, um, goes into the pleural space, takes out his, uh, lymph, uh, some limbs, about 11 lymphs, lymph nodes and his adrenal. Um, but just so you understand as heavy as that sounds, I've seen people with grapefruit sized tumors wrapped around the spinal cord that Sloan's dealing with as well. So, uh, like they say, like if you're standing in a room and you all threw your, your problems on the floor never say you want someone else's problems because someone always has it worse. And that's one thing I'm learning is as bad as it is, you got to count your blessings and take the, the W's where you can, because things can always be worse. And as hard as things are, just fight the fight you got ahead of you and don't ruminate on it because things change quickly. Um, the one thing that hurt us really bad lately is that he has to be on a feeding tube, which is a blessing in disguise because he would bounce back really good from chemo and start eating again. The last two rounds he hasn't, I think he just got really hit hard by the surgery. His, um, intestines were obviously moved around to make space to find things. Everything's kind of getting back into place. He's healing well, considering it's hard to heal during chemo, but it's a very rough process to watch your three-year-old go through. And remember he's growing up in this. So that three to four-year-old, your kid, cognitively is he's very aware he's very intelligent he knows what's going on and he's also dealing with the trauma of it and you're trying to mitigate the trauma while also absorbing trauma because you're seeing this happen to your child and the only way out is through you can't revert back to your old life like this is your new your new reality and you have to put your head through it and go through your emotions but then get back on track and you know with, with a parent with a parent with another child the other child goes through it too so I have to mitigate her uh, quality of life, moving to New York, getting her into school. She can't not go to school. The girl needs still an education. There's, there's a juggle. And, and I've, I've been making like an Evernote uh, basically manual for parents because every parent that I've talked to, the worst thing was, is that they didn't understand what they had in, in front of them, which made decision fatigue, which delayed care, which delayed decision, which on the back foot, the first six months are the most important from when you find out whether it's stage two or stage four, the earlier, the better. So the better the decisions and the quality of decisions you make in that first space is going to dictate the next four to five years of your life. Um, and that's where we're at. I'm very glad we made the decisions we made. We, we basically, my new job, fortunately, um, worked out like it's like a blessing in disguise because their insurance actually got us to Sloan because my old insurance through Hawaii wouldn't allow us to travel outside a network. It wasn't deemed, you know, you, there was a, there was an intervention that they could do in Hawaii. It wasn't preferred, but there was an intervention. So insurance game. Um, so luckily and huge blessing. And then also the thank you to the Waikai team, because I'm I, luckily I'm able to do most of I would say 90% of my job remotely um, besides like coming in for events and things like that nature. But they part of my, um, saving James basically because he wouldn't have been able to get to Sloan. And I think Sloan is going to be a very determining factor on his outcome. So we're, we're in the Northeast now. 
uh, fun, funny, as you say, because I think the last time we talked, I was telling you that we were never off duty was going to be working with the state department. They got picked up to do these, um, lifeguard and conservation surf centric type things. And we were about to get on a plane to Sri Lanka to do that right when this happened. So it's like, what I will tell people is don't make plans in life. Just, just kind of do your thing, go along, but get ready to, you know, like, like Mike Tyson says, is like everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And it's real because until life hits you full force, you're going to have to learn how to adapt in the moment and make a new plan. So it's like, yeah, great. We all have our plans, but don't be so rigid and think, because if you get stuck in that way that nothing can change, you're going to have a tough time when things do change. And that's one piece I would say for parents is like, just adapt or get slapped because you're going to need to flow and kind of ride the wave um, and make good decisions in in the moment as best you can, because you can freeze and get, you know, paralysis by analysis and the delay, especially with cancer care is, is, is very uh, real and it can screw things up. So it's like one of the reasons I'm actually writing this little journal is so that parents can go, okay, this is all the info I needed in those first two weeks right here, whether it's the organizations that help you out. Like we've had a lot of help getting moved over here, shipping a car, you know, what's, how do we fly? We don't have the funds to fly. Well, there's, there's different programs that will help you fly. Um, how do we choose the best hospital? Is it St. Jude? Is it our local hospital? Is it, you know, mass general? Is it Miami? Where is it? Why is it Sloan for this? Cause, cause every cancer is a little different. And uh, this one specifically, it was like the one you really got to get into the woods on. There's, there's genetic uh, mutations that can make the, the outcome very more daunting. And there's only certain specific treatments that are even uh, effective on it. So you know where those treatments are because you're basically establishing your life around your child's uh, success rate and probability. So you're, you're doing a lot, of, a lot of juggling to get to where we're at right now. Well, you talked about the the chemo versus immunotherapy, you know, options. Um, one of the the things I've always struggled to understand is the kind of Agent Orange approach of just killing everything and hoping, fingers crossed, that the right things start up again. Talk to me about the immunotherapy side. What what is the difference between that and the chemo in twenty twenty three? Sure. So let me let me say something from from personal experience. Chemo sucks. It is what it is. What I've seen, and I don't think it's anecdotal, is kids handle chemo better than adults. Now, why would you do that? Because you're breaking them down to build them back up to regenerate quicker. Once you're 40 and you're in chemo, your body doesn't regenerate like it does at the three-year-old. So your recovery from chemo, and I have a friend going through it right now, and he's just going finally through to immunotherapy, which is basically your body fighting and signaling the cancer versus the chemo, just killing it and going back and forth. Um, with what he had, because he didn't have a lot of soft tissue, chemo is very good at eradicating it in the bone marrow. It was a necessary means. I obviously would never want my kid to have to go through chemo, but the XY axis of the decision-making, we have to for this one. Um, immunotherapy though, and the consensus is what I'm seeing, and you know, someone can correct me online, but I personally, from what I've read and what I've seen, is immunotherapy is going to replace chemo in the next five to 10 years as they get it more dialed into specific cancers. I'm not saying chemo will never be a use because there is a use for it. It's really useful, like blood uh, cancers, leukemia, leukemia, look at leukemia is like 99% curable now. Um, but for this specific one, it's, it's a mix of a few different things is they want to eradicate the disease as best as possible, then start building them up with immunotherapy, which is, is very invasive and very painful, but it works. Um, 30% uh, survivability increase since they started using it. Sloan was the one who, brought it to the forefront. So I wanted to go, you know, they're using it at 
children's oncology. They're using it everywhere now, but I wanted to go to the people that have been studying it and brought it to the forefront. Um, preferably like example is like chemo is an old technology. I want to use it sparingly into the least amount for the most efficacy. And then I want to move on to the newest best. And that's what we're doing at this point is we've, we're following their protocols and they have the, the data. So that's great. The other thing about Sloan, um, and I'm not here to do like a, a PSA on Sloan, but they're very forward thinking with integrated medicine. So they're not against the CBDs. They're not against the THCs. They're not against anything that works when we've talked to, um, you know, post-care said, Hey, you know, I, there's a lot of snake oil out there. What do you think of this? Like, what do you think of Turkey tail? There, there's good evidence. We've been following it. It's not going to hurt him. Go for it when he's out of chemo and he's, there's no reason there's no interaction. Okay. So what do you think about turmeric? Turmeric's great. Turmeric's great, but don't do it post-surgery because it's, it's a uh, blood thinner, like an aspirin. So they're very, in my opinion, is where I want to be as whereas I'm all for quality science and I'm also for holistic. And I think the pairing of the two especially with what we have going on here is what's going to be the winning um, combination. Um, because a lot of things like just genetically, I don't, I don't operate well with opioids. They don't do anything for me for pain. Same with my son. When he was on epidural, he had pain relief. When they switched to oral and they added like the uh, oxy or the Dilaudid, just made him loopy, didn't touch pain. So we took that out. They understand that. They, you know, we, they agreed with us. That's, that's the great thing is that when they listen to the parents, it's, it's massive because you see them for 24 hours, they see them for an hour a day. It's a different when you have a really close relationship with your child and you know them well, you have to advocate. Um, I will say for parents, your job is advocating for your child will not stop once you're on this roller coaster. Do not ever think you can just sit back and ride the wave of care. Um, people make mistakes. It's your job to catch them. You don't need to be, uh, you know, even though I, I have been at points where things have messed up, like I found antibiotics on the floor during this process of neutropenic fever, when the syringe didn't push things go wrong, you know, not intentionally, but your job is to catch it. So be prepared that you're not on this whisk cloud. that's just going to get you from point A to cure. You have to be on it because there will be things in this, this, uh, this journey that, it's on you to correct because if you don't correct it, they will spiral. And every 12 hours, there's going to be a new person looking at your, your child and they don't know what the last 12 hours are. They don't understand what just happened and why he needs a rest or why you need, maybe need to pause some type of treatment or why he needs some type of other intervention or why this med doesn't work. Like an example is um, standard protocols. If the kid has anxiety, they give him Ativan, which is a benzo, uh, is a benzo, benzodiazepine, which is a very heavy medication. I was against it. Um, it was given anyway and put my son in, into a catatonic state for 20 uh, hours when he just was post-op and was already walking. He had this huge progress, three days already walking and playing, down for five days. Now he has bed sores and his back hurts. So if you have a gut feeling, I know you're not a doctor, I know you're not a nurse, but if you're doing a lot of research, sometimes you do have the same information and you know your child better than anyone else. Make sure that you have your opinion voiced. And even sometimes when you do and they don't listen, Get patient advocacy because nobody's trying to hurt your child, but inadvertently you need to know that they are being checked just because of that fact that things can go wrong. Just like with our job, I used to say like, Hey, you show up the pipeline today. I'm on my game. You're all good. You show up tomorrow. I don't know who's here. New guy. It is what it is. It, it just is what it is. So, um, there's amazing people in this, in this work. There's amazing doctors, patients, there's amazing, amazing nurses too. But again, fatigue, pay, 
time and circumstances, you're the parent at the end of the day. It's, it's your job. So, so stay on it. Like anybody that might hear this is about to go on one of these massive uh, care journeys is like, you're in it, but prepare your mind. It is your job. You, that is 100% your responsibility to follow up on everything. Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's that's true for everyone. You know, whether we're taking care of our kids or ourselves or our partner. Um, you know, the the margin for error and even some of the arrogance in medicine. You're obviously in a very good place with some very progressive, forward-thinking people, but there are a lot of people that you know prescribe and someone walks out you know so i think whether it's your actual medication and surgeries or whether it's your received advice on nutrition and exercise or lack thereof you know you have to do the research knowledge is power and i've been in four hospitals uh since we've kind of found a home at sloan like we were uh trying to get my daughter in school in new jersey so she has some normalcy and uh we're very great graciously we're out to do outpatient at the jersey shore and what i will say is hospitals in general, um, they're different compartmentalized things. So the PICU is different than the ICU and the ICU is different from the emergency room. You come to the emergency room and you have a kid with neutropenic fever, their core competency is patch them up and go bleeding control, trauma, CPR, BLS, move them into intensive care. If you arrive at midnight, which unfortunately just seems to be the time that fevers pop in neutropenic kids and you have to go through the ER, that is not a conducive environment for a three-year-old child under duress with a neutropenic fever, no fault of their own. So what does that mean? You need to be on your game. You need to make sure that he's getting what he needs. You need to know what's happening because it really isn't their core competency. You're almost being angry at someone for something that they're not trained to handle. You need to move the ball forward on your own and like make sure the parts are working. And, and you know, it's midnight. Am I calling his oncologist to make sure that am I calling Sloan to get whatever it may be? you can't be angry at the system. The system is what you're going to have to navigate better off knowing now that I'm in it is like, I understand the medical system, but I would have loved to know what I know now six months ago when this all started. So hopefully, you know, have a very, uh, have a, a, a success with James and, and regardless, I'm going to put out this manual and I'm going to just, I think I'm just going to do it as like a free thing for people. And if they want to donate to maybe Ronald McDonald to repay him or some type of organization that's doing it, that's kind of what I want to do because um, the logistics side of doing what we just got to say, say we say we're at the 25% mark of this journey in my head. It had so many people involved, so many caring people um, and so much help from Ronald McDonald, so much help from like community um, that were very fortunate. And I don't, see every parent having the same resources and it's still been extremely difficult. So if you remove that community aspect, you remove the Ronald McDonald house, you removed um, the information from the other parents that are on this journey and this little community, we would be so far on the back foot. And I know some parents are that are just arriving now here doing it. And I talk to them and they're like two years out to diagnosis to a proper diagnosis, six months out to a proper diagnosis, six, eight months to an actual care to figure out where they're going to do the surgery or they did the surgery in the wrong place. And now they're here and they, it's just like, and it's, it's all dependent on the situation, but there's, there is a lot of, if you could read a, a 30 page, 40 page manual and jumpstart that um, I think it would be a, a really big help. And then any, any of the residual stuff that comes from it to go back to help families, like especially the Ronald McDonald house, like these places, these guys are angels over here. Like no joke. Like what I see, like at, as heavy as our situation. I see people coming from Tokyo, coming from the Middle East, moving their whole life here. 
there is no way they could come to New York City and have this level of medical care and the most competitive, best medical care place probably on the globe without these resources, without these caseworkers, these social workers. There's probably like hands on, there's probably been 50 people that have helped us um, get to here and it's still been difficult. So think about that. But if, if you don't know where to look, you're not going to get those resources. You're just going to be looking up at the sky, going wherever. Like, like think about it, London, the guy that we talked to, London should have amazing care, but not specifically for neuroblastoma. So depending on the situation for your child, and hopefully nobody that listens to this, their child has neuroblastoma, it is a very rare disease, but whatever happens in your life, it's like you want the resources to get into the best care. I think uh, hopefully this, this will help people. And I'm, I'm like, literally if someone DMs me on Instagram and has questions, I've helped out like three or four families get here already to navigate it just in the last two months. Like one from Rhode Island, I just met yesterday. Like, Oh my God, thank you for that info. We just did the surgery yesterday. We're so happy that we've made this choice. And I was like, you know, I wasn't trying to like tell you to do anything. I was just giving you my own experience and it worked out for me and it might not work out for someone else, but like just having resources is, is massive. For, for families well it's like we talked about with the fragmented fire service you know i mean this is what we need we need knowledge share we need barriers to come down not raise up so uh, i think it's amazing when, when the manual is is ready let me know and obviously i'll share that too i actually read a book uh, it's called coming up for air uh, a buddy just like kind of like an internet buddy that i've met a few times that that comedian um andrew schultz's buddy wrote it and uh it was just called coming up for air and it's more about business and me being in the corporate world now, essentially, uh, I wanted to fine tune some skills. I don't like being inept in any field I'm at. So I was like, okay, let's, let's see how we can be efficient. And one of the acronyms he uses, I read the whole book. It's, it's really interesting. Um, it's, it's CPR, which is uh, very close to home, you know, like what we do all the time, but it's communications and then planning and then resources, meaning like you communicate to develop a plan. And you don't allocate resources until that plan is in effect. So a lot of people just throw assets at things. You're like, even, even the cancer care, like, let's just hit it. Get this, get this tumor out of my kid. Let's just do it. Like, cause you get anxiety and you just want movement, but movement in any direction without like, uh, with, without accuracy could do more harm. So like communication planning and, re- and I used it for all this. My Evernote, if you look at it, you're going to be like, holy shit. It is just like, it's just ongoing. I have to, I have to subdivide it now. It's just info, 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 info. And then it's like useful info. If this, then that, you know, like if this happens then we do that, if this and why we're doing it. And it's because I communicated with the community to get my plan before I got on, like to make the resources. So in those two weeks, I had a very pressure cooker, but I had very, very good information um, for a very small period of time, but I didn't just make a decision because you can't walk back that decision. It's like pushing a med, the med's already in the bloodstream. You should have researched it before you hit that syringe or let that nurse hit the syringe. You can't walk back that. So, so figure it out before you do it. Even if you have a pressure cooker of a time frame, make sure you get as much data in your head to, to make the best plan, you know, and then, and then do the resources, then get on the plane and talk to the doctor and things like that. Well, I want to get on to kind of how you guys are coping and how, you know, what you do with James to kind of help him navigate the suffering. But just before we do, you're sitting in Ronald McDonald's house. This is the perfect example of why everything in life is nuanced. It's not black and white. So, of course, there's an element of what McDonald's does that I would argue, you know, makes our nation less healthy. 
but there's clearly an altruistic arm within that company that's doing incredible things. So talk to me about the actual house there. itself. So let's, let's, let's think about that in life. So, okay. So what I would say this specific, this is an, each Ronald McDonald house is an autonomous thing. Meaning they get their own funding. They are, you know, affiliate and they're getting funds from Ronald, from McDonald's, which is great because they should be giving back to, you know, it's a very, very big company that's based off the back of American middle-class that have been spending money there. So I think it's great that they do this. However, the workers here, they're, they're constantly raising money and they're working with sports programs and teams and, and benefactors and things of that nature to do this. It's a very necessity. Now, um, that being said to wonderful experience here, nothing to complain about. Amazing. Now with our cancer, what we have now, again, not anecdotal, but still do your own research. It is an environmental cancer. So 99, 98% to the, if you look up the general data on Google, it says it's an environmental cancer, sometimes started in utero. So biomagnification in um, the mother's womb could be like, in my opinion, and theories are theories, Hawaii is a poison paradise. There's more uh, glyphosate and pesticides in the water table there than anywhere in the world. If you look up Red Hill right now, um, the dichotomy of the world is like, yes, we need this modern world to survive, but also we're not doing a good job of mitigating it and how it's poisoning our families. Um, food systems probably made the biggest leap in, um, in population growth and, and affordability for food, all these pesticides, but now on the back end, cancers are on the rise in massive droves. There's no denying it. Like, like listen to Robert Kennedy and things like that. And, and you know, it's like, you're making, you're making enemies uh, by even stating these things, but it's like, Hey, who cares at this point? Money's fake. Anyway, we make it up. It's, it's just a, you know, it's, it's just, it's, just, it's an exchange of how we, how we function. But when we're taking out lives and we're not figuring out better ways, it's the same thing as lifeguarding. Don't get stuck in the old way because it work then doesn't mean it needs to work now. We don't need to continue to do what we did wrong just because there's a profit margin involved in it. We will figure out other ways to make money and have livelihoods. We should be doing this. Um, the North Shore, unfortunately, has cancer clusters. People don't maybe want to turn the blind eye to it, but Kauai, uh, where we live on the North Shore of Oahu, it is agriculture. There is massive cancer clusters that have been covered up, and uh, it's bullshit. I, I, I walked on all the marches. The, the, the indiscriminate spraying of pesticides close to residential is apparent. Um, Hawaii is a testing zone for even more uh, intense stuff because it's a bubble. Hawaii has always been a testing ground. Why? Because it doesn't have escape velocity, meaning if something fails there, it's not going to spread to the mainland. So what does that happen? Middle-class, lower-class communities usually catch the brunt of it. Things like Red Hill with like the jet fuel leaking into the water table. People are going to get cancers from that. Now, what they do in the hospital is they're the cleanup crew. They are not at fault for this. What's at fault is a machine. It's not, a, it's like a, like you hear Joe Rogan, it's like a, uh, Diffusion of responsibility. The guy that works for Monsanto, which is Bear now, he doesn't really associate his job with the fact that his his neighbor got cancer in the community that he worked with. You know what I mean? But when I'm sitting in, in uh, Kapilani and I see all these young children with leukemias and blood cancers, and then you go like, what? What's going on here? And then you just see Occam's razor is the easiest answer. You're living next to like a uh, test field for corn where they're testing new pesticides all the time. It's, you know what I mean? It, it is what it is at this point. And I think people need to stop bullshitting themselves that we're, we're in a, an environmental catastrophe of, of, uh, and the human cost is real. And um, the fact that, you know, I, I'm like a canary, like I have water filtration systems. I have everything in my house. Like it's 
possibly afford to do it. It still hit us. And that's because petrochemicals, there's not too many filters. Like I was distilling my water in New Jersey and the amount of crap that I took out of it is baffling. I'll send you a photo after. We got to stop lying to ourselves that these problems are just not there. They're there. And I don't care who the fucking CEO is. I don't care who, what money control, what bank, whatever. It needs to be fixed. And there's probably money in fixing it. So how about we start figuring out and using our collective brain power to stop like just saying and turning a blind eye and dealing with the lawsuits and spending that money to fix the fucking problem and figure out a new way because we all know there's a new way. That's what America is. It's figuring it out. And, you know, like, um, again, no fault on the people that are here for the cleanup crew because they're doing a wonderful job. But I think the real issue is how do we mitigate it? So our children stop having to have this on a lower, on a lower rate. There's always going to be cancers. There's always going to be genetic things. There's always going to be tragedy, but let's get less of it. Let's figure out ways to get less of it because it's, it's really tiresome knowing that there is interventions and nobody's putting their hand up to do it. Well, again, you look at, there's a couple of things that have you know, been an awakening for me. Firstly, you look at the arrogance of modern technology, the way that we're sold. Like, oh, without us, we wouldn't be able to feel the world. Well, without us, without you, the world was doing just fucking fine for a long, long time. Unless you found yourself living in an arid part of the planet that was subject yeah. to drought. Everyone else... Yeah, like in Sudan or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, Everyone else is doing well. And obviously the, the goal with that, if that's you know, left to natural resources, you try and move people to, to where there is you know, water and is food. Well, yeah, yeah. Technology is like technology is technology. There's this type of technology, and then there's that type of technology. Let's see if the other one that has less has less uh, negative effects works just as well, and then we can just re- replace it. You know what I mean? It's just the way it is. Like we wouldn't be talking without technology and community. I think there's it's a great tool, but let's look at what's going on and say, hey, just because that it's uh, that that. Uh, Technology has a high grade, has a high rate of probability. It doesn't mean it's the right technology. It just means it's a convenient one for some person or some group. Too fucking bad. Let's 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 figure it out. Yeah. You know, well, we, we're doing fine for for you know millennia without all this technology. Now, as you said, I'm not demonizing technology. There are areas of it of medicine of, of all these things that are helping. But you know, if you look at the the um, the Monsanto origin, it comes from, you know, unused chemical warfare they were trying to apply somewhere else. You know, it didn't come from some amazing, you know, realization that this was going to be a healthy way of, of growing food. There's an oversight that worked for another benefit. Sometimes those things happen. Sometimes you like, uh, there's there's certain uh, medications that they've found to work for like appetite that they really needed that was used for a totally different thing. And sometimes there's accidents that work great. That's kind of sucks. There is, there is like a, uh, there's a, what do you call it? It's like, there's a serendipitous element to science sometimes, and, but let's just do less harm, you know, while we're doing it in that process. And let's focus on the things that are actually going to fix society holistically, not just go, Hey, well, good. We got great medicine, but let's stop creating problems to increase the need for great medicine. Let's give the volume a lot less. Like we can, you know, just, just through clean water, it would fix a lot of things then nationwide. Like, it's not just it's not it's not just agriculture. There's old pipes. There's there's still people dealing with lead pipes in half this nation. You know, if we're gonna spend money and create jobs, let's do some infrastructure that actually will affect some people's lives. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, the diffusion of responsibility, I don't think these people in these positions really want to see people have kids with cancer, kids that are ill. Like, why would someone wake up that day, even if you're not the most perfect person? That's just it is it makes zero sense. It doesn't do anything for anybody. So I don't know. 
that's my little war cry. It's like, you know, you're going to push people to a point and you're going to get, you're going to get resistance because you're ignoring the fact for, for convenience. Like there is another way. We know there's another way. You just don't want to do it because of laziness and convenience to your pocketbook. And that's shitty. That's just, uh. Well, I would argue as well. It's kind of fetchy. was one of uh, Joe Rogan's guests said guru just, it just said, you know, a passing comment and it made me think, well, that's a really good point. We talk about the mental health crisis, you know, I mean, the, the, the impact of what we do for a living and, and how that factors in and unaddressed childhood trauma. But we think of it as manifesting in alcoholism and, you know, domestic violence and all this. Well, I would argue that a lot of these people in charge of, you know, pharmaceutical companies, um, you know, the t- uh, cigarette companies, etc., they can they sleep because they're mentally ill as well. Because no ethic, you know, ethical, kind human being would be able to sleep at night knowing that their products are killing people. So I think this is the problem as we're dealing with a mental health crisis, even at the CEO level. And that is why we've got these predatory companies like literally making themselves billionaires as Americans die by the fucking droves. Simply put, is is like we have a very short view of history, but just look at the oxycotton crisis. You know what I mean? It's like, how in the world could you say they didn't know what was going on? There's just no, there's no plausible deniability in any of that. Now, what I'm saying is there is, I think the, the antidote to that is good people putting themselves out there and grinding to go try to make money because money isn't evil. It's how it's used. So if you can figure out a way to fix a problem and while making money and being altruistic, then I think you should go out there and do that. Because if you do have a brain and you do have a good heart, you could correct a lot of those problems. You can't just sit back like, well, there's evil people in the world that, yeah, that's nothing new. It's just getting uh, exponentially um, exacerbated by technology and people using it for the wrong thing. But at the same time, it's like, I use chat GBT uh, from a friend of mine from Germany to see more info on neuroblastoma, right? That's a good thing for AI. It's not the tool. It's, it's, it's who's using the tool and for what. So if you got a good heart and you want to put some work in and try to fix some problems, don't just sit back and be a negative person. I see a lot of people do this. They just, they just state problems all day. They're like, God, these guys are doing this to us and this and this. I'm like, you know what? You can literally go out and put all of your energy into fixing that problem. Or you could spend the next 20 years talking about how someone's profiting off your, your decay of life. You know what I mean? It's like, they ain't going to do anything at the end of the day. You're just going to be a depressed person because you got walked all over how about you fight back through using whatever resources you have and, and, and make some type of end roads to fix the problem. So even if it's just speaking about it, like me personally, like I don't, I'm like a down the road. I'm not red. I'm not blue. I'm like purple. Um, if Robert Kennedy is saying what he's saying, I'm definitely getting my vote for it. And I, and I really hope, I really hope a lot of, cause I, you know, he does have a good track record. I don't care what political, I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. Good people are good people. And people that want to fix problems are the people I'm interested in because it's like, if everyone just sits there and kicks the football about, about their ideologies, it's like, at the end of the day, kids are still getting sick. Who the fuck cares? You know what I mean? Like you're, you're, you're not doing anything. You're just arguing. You know what I mean? We're trying to, we're trying to move forward. That that's the goal with all these things, like all these conversations, like you need action. So if, if that is, you know, a leader, like we need more leaders that have like actual historical record of doing things and completing tasks for the benefit of of the whole not the not just the pockets that's that's the only thing i'm interested at this point especially in the situation i'm in because it literally in my opinion was an avoidable life interruption this wasn't something he was born this isn't a congenial heart failure this is 
this is something that got put into play and I have tried to avoid it at all costs and it still hit me and it's hitting other parents. It's like, that will give you some motivation to be like, you know, fuck you guys, fix your fi- fix your problem. You know what I mean? Like you, you're, you're, we don't care. We don't care how much power. We don't, cause that means nothing at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Your kids is the most important thing to fight for. So you really want to see the, a motivating factor is watch your child get sick and see where you end up on your opinion scale and what's going on in the world. And you're, you're going to have a different view of it. Exactly. I, I yesterday or the day before yesterday, and then yesterday was Fourth of July. My I put a few posts on Instagram, and it was simply this: like every year we beat our chests and we talk about we're the greatest country in the world and all this stuff. And it's not about shitting on the country, but it's like, well, wait a second, you're celebrating when a group of people were sick and tired of tyranny and they overthrew it. It wasn't against the UK. Most you, you know, British people were back fucking living their best lives, you know, trying to get on and feed their kids. It was it was a tyranny of oppression. So you're, you're like you don't want you don't want an absentee landlord. That's no, what exactly. Is. So you know, yeah. my thing was this: you've had that happen again. There has been oppression through the ill health of this nation, and you can talk about pediatric cancer and the uh, you know, the uh, opiate crisis. I mean, you name it. The you know obesity epidemic. There's a thousand. So it was a call for action, rather than just wave flags. You know, blow yourself up with fireworks and and eat hot dogs. How about you actually look in your own home? And then your community and figure out how can I do something to make this a little better. It's not about being the greatest. I fucking hate that phrase. We're the greatest country in the world. A, it's not a competition. B, we're fucking not. So yeah. <laughs> just let that yeah. resonate. My, my opinion on America, because I've grown up, I've seen so many different aspects of it. I think it's a place, it always should be a place of hope to manifest the best things in humanity. Like you can come here. I, I'm. I'm personally, I, I hate when people get like, or like the immigration thing. I'm like, I'm all for immigrants because they usually come over here and they want to grind. And I, I hate seeing lazy Americans that complain about their country and do nothing about it. Like, this is your home. So why are you shitting on your home and not trying to fix it? You know what I mean? Because like I, I made a post yesterday. It's like America is not a sum of its bureaucracies. It's a sum of its neighborhoods and communities. So if you have a problem in your community, go fix your community. Like go out and do it. It's your country. So to say it's, it's like you, you're only as good as, as your actions. So like personally, like we, we don't need to beat our chest, but we should be like, hey, as a whole, people that come here work for the betterment of them, of their livelihoods as a whole. So this 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 country gets better and stays like as good or great or however you want to label it. But if you're just going to point fingers and wait for the government to do that. That's not what America was. America was a frontier place. It was here for adventure. It was here to figure it out, to not do what they were doing the old way and progress. So I'm all for people coming from other countries with great ideas and working hard and fixing America because we're in a, we're in a slump right now. And I think it's apathy. We're in an apathetic slump where we're like red, blue, blue, shut the fuck up and get to work. Like, you know what I mean? Like stop talking about problems that some guy in a room you think created for your life and just fix the little things. Like if you do a water test, you're like, oh, the water go do a water test, a third party water test, show what it actually is and go, you know what? We need to fix this. Hey, 10,000 people in my community, you want to go pick it at the, the water board and say, we don't want this in our water anymore. It'll change like that. It's you are your country. Your country isn't some thing that unless you let it oppresses you, it's your country. I don't care where you live. I don't care where you live. Look how history plays out. 
people get fed up, it goes into a cyclical cycle and then they get apathetic and they get oppressed. Don't let it get to that point. Figure it out, fight for what you need. It's your world, whether it's your country, it's your world. Organize, fix problems. That's, that's the only way around it, essentially. That's it. That's in my opinion. I've said this a few times on the show already. One of my guests um, gave an analogy a little while ago, and he said, you're in medieval England, and you're, you know, you're looking over the, the castle wall, and you've got the peasants arguing with each other. He goes, where, if they're arguing with each other, if they're fighting each other, where are they not looking at? The castle. And I was like, that's, that's it. That, that sums it up. Divide and conquer. The only way that we're going to make change is you stop pigeonholing each other and fighting each other. And you actually realize that you're, you, know, you all live in that town, that street, that whatever, that projects, whatever it is that you live in. And you are part of the solution. But the moment that you blame, oh, the fucking libtards or, you know, fascists or whatever you're labeling and you actually realize, yeah, the, you, you, do you want your kids to die? No? Okay, you already got commonality there. Do you want to get, you know, do you want to stay warm? Do you want a roof over your head? Do you want your kids to be fed? Do you want clothes on their back? That is 80% commonality. Stop looking at where you disagree and look at where you agree. And like you said, fix your home and then step outside your fucking front door, look around and go, how can I use my skill set to make this community a little better? And personally, like, so you know, for whatever reason, I've been around an element of whatever, I don't know what you want to call it, like celebrity or whatever. I've seen, I've seen that. I literally could give a shit about a politician or a celebrity unless they're using it to benefit the whole. Don't care. You're worthless to me. You just got a camera put on you. It's all that happened. If you're not doing anything with that, you're useless to me. Like literally useless. You're just a voice box for that. You don't have any, you have no of your own thoughts. You're, you're just like a freaking ventriloquist for some agenda that I don't give a shit about. If, unless you're putting your money where your mouth is and going out there and like fighting for what you really believe in, it's like, I don't, you're just a waste of space to me. And, um, and I hate to say that, but sometimes it's like, you got to hear it. People need to hear that. Uh, the fact that is like, if, if you're, if you're like this grandiose person as a politician and like, and just in face value, just spitting all this thing and never having, and never actually having done anything. It's like, you're the worst of the worst because all you're doing is delaying, uh, you're, de- you're delaying tasks that need to be accomplished. You're just, you're not doing shit. And it's, it's sad because I think that's what America's become. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of talk and not a lot of do. And I think we got to get back to doing and not talking. And it's just me, myself included, like hold yourself accountable. Like don't just, don't just get on a podcast and say, go, go fix something, whatever it is in your wheelhouse that you can fix, go fix that. You know what I mean? And don't be afraid. You're not going to live once anyway. We're going to piss some, you're going to piss a corporate company off you know, piss some politician off who's going to fade into the fucking block anyway in a couple of years. Like, we could just shit. You know what I mean? Like, hold them to the screws. You know, you know, you know, like, you know, you just have to, you just have to shed light on the bullshit. It's the way it is. Absolutely. Yeah. I've always said, you know, this podcast is not to make friends. It's to actually try and make a difference. It's not me, but that's why I'm inviting people like you. 800 people now have come on bringing solutions to problems. I mean, someone listening now, if they have a kid, that is going through any sort of medical issues, they're going to take what you told us the last 30 minutes and apply that to their care. Yeah. This is a solution. And, and, to that's, a and that's like the essential. And that's like the essential thing is like this technology can be used for good or for bad. It just depends who is at the helm of the ship. Um, you know, like I, I have to, I have to get back to care. So I'll probably wrap it up with this. So it's like, you know, every day you're making like a degree change of a ship and you're trying to get back to port. Right. So make sure like 
when you're doing that, you're doing it with the goal in mind to get, get back to safe and sound and like make good decisions that benefit yourself in the whole. Don't make decisions that are just going to benefit you and screw up the whole. Like it's there, there is win-wins everywhere in life. Um, and like, even this, like just, just having info, like I said, anybody listening to this, they need some, some little bit of hints. I'm happy to take time to help. Like I'm so passionate about helping parents now considering what I see people go through and just do that. Like if that's all you can do, do that, but whatever you can do to help out the community, do that and watch how quickly things get better. It, it will get better. Like, but my dad, people like they keep like, I hate to say this, but I've heard it so many times. I can't imagine. I can't. It, yeah, you can't imagine. But like, uh, here's a scenario. Like you get life thrown at you. You don't have a choice. You can either sit back and wallow in it or you can get moving. And my dad taught me, he's like, hey, you're going to have problems in life, but it's, it's hard to hit a moving target. So if you just keep moving and you keep marching forward, your problems will get better. So if people just adapt that attitude and they don't just sulk in it, like it, it is a sad thing what we're going through, but it's like, it ain't going to change it. So like, 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 let's get, let's get some movement going. You know what I mean? Even now when I, I'm going over the hospital, I got to go relieve my wife. We've been doing on and off nights. Um, I got to get my mind right because I need to motivate this kid because he hasn't been getting PT, like just because of the holiday and everything. And he's actually, I got to come in with a smile and, and be the hype man to get him out of bed because him sitting in bed is not going to fix the situation. Me being lazy and waiting for someone else to do it. Oh, OTPT hasn't showed up. There's been a delay. The, the call didn't go in, whatever. Well, okay. Is that an excuse? Figure it out. You know, I can make him kick my leg and move his legs around. I can do this. Don't wait for other people to fix your problems because they're not going to go away. Get hands on, start moving. And then people see you and they get motivated. And they'll join like, oh, cool. Like, what are we doing? You know what I mean? Like, don't, don't just, just sit there. It, it, nobody's coming to save you. Just get moving and figure it out kind of thing. Like that's the old, the old way is the right way. And that, in that world is where nobody's going to do it for you. That's where America should go back to screw politicians, screw politics, start working towards a better tomorrow. And it'll happen. Like, just do it. Like get it, get out of your head that somehow some social program or this or that they're needed, but that's not really how you fix your problems. You fix your problems by having a mission, by having determination. And then you have satisfaction because at the end of the day, you said, Oh, I got myself out of the hole with the help of the community, but I wasn't just waiting for some helicopter money or some, some, from some like hand of God to come down there and get me out of it. I, at least I put the, put the two foot in front of the one foot in front of the next and got moving.